And speaking of our prior conversation, uh, as far as if you had gotten a fist fight, you could probably take us off. You're listening to Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong. Welcome to episode 171 of the Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong podcast. I'm Dave Roberts. With me is my podcast partner, Crime. 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 I've already screwed up. Well. We're, we're 10 seconds in. Writer, journalist, philanthropist, <laughs> Jessica Salagi. I'm not the philanthropist. Stanley okay. is the philanthropist. And now you're like totally, you know, coming in on my closing thought. <laughs> Well, it, it, it was You're a preview. It, it was it was it was a foreshadowing. Oh, well, everybody just is going to be holding their breath through the whole 55 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. We can't ha- we can't have any any of our listeners die on us. Was How was your week? It was it was fine. How was your week? Very busy. Really, really busy. Uh, Atlanta was hot last week. I know over the weekend, uh, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm saying I'm speaking in the past when it's actually the future. The weekend's supposed to be a lot cooler, so maybe it'll uh, be nice for Memorial Day. I did see Wonder Woman 1984. Mm-hmm. It was a giant piece of crap. Really? Oh, yeah. And look, I would watch Gal Gadot read the phone book. Uh, but it just was, it was a hot mess of of a mixture of girl power and wokeness, uh, insulting the, the, uh, uh, insulting Reagan a little bit, which I don't mind making fun of Reagan. Reagan didn't mind being made, made fun of just, it just was, it just was plot was hard, was really hard to follow. It just was, was just out there, man. I just, and I love period films. I loved, uh, the Americans when it was on FX. I, you know, the, that was based in the eighties. I, I, I enjoy that stuff. I, I, I enjoy period. It just was just other than seeing Gal Gadot, uh, run around, uh, w- w- with her legs. That was really the, the only highlight of the, plus I don't like Kristen Wiig. I don't, not really, she, I don't much care much for her performances, but it just was a giant piece of crap, and and Connie's a huge Wonder Woman fan, and even she was like, "Ah, what?" Well, if if anyone's not a fan of girl power, it's me. So I don't think I would enjoy it either. But you are the world's worst feminist. Yeah, I think that is a compliment, though. <laughs> I know my place, and it's just being a woman. I don't, I don't have to like fight about it. So whatever. <laughs> just being a woman. Yeah, just be a woman. Um, do, do you have any choice? No, that's what's wild. Like, it just is. It just is. But, you know, I think I do a fairly good job at it. As far, from where I'm sitting, uh, you, you seem to. I mean, you seem to run uh, run laps around men with uh, with your intellect, so... Well, thank I, I you. I don't think you need to get in a fist fight and fly and fly an <laughs> invisible jet in order, in order to be dominating in your field. You know, it's funny. It's funny that you say that because I had to go to the grocery store last week sometime. And, and I was actually thinking when I was in the parking lot, like if I ever got into a physical altercation, like I wonder what the circumstances around that would be. Because the only experience I have with like putting my hands on someone else's in the third grade when I punched a kid in the stomach. And I had permission to do that because he'd been screwing with me and my parents said, you know, sock him. So I did. And I won. He's, you know, and we're, we're Facebook friends now. Like everything's cool, but I had to put him in his place. But like you, when I, I was thinking about it, you started party, him on a dark path of being punched by, by women. <laughs> he was pulling my hair. Don't go anywhere from there. Just don't even comment. But, <laughs> but um, anyway, I was in the parking lot and I was like, I, I so I, then I just had this like, you know, when you stare off in the distance and you just find yourself like deep in thought way down the rabbit hole. And I was like, I wonder what it would like, what the circumstances would be if I got in a fist fight with somebody, like what they would do to, to provoke me. What would be the, the straw that broke the camel's back that had me, you know, doing uppercuts and right roundhouse kicks and stuff. Uh, do anything to Stanley. Well, I'm not going to say what I would do on the show if anyone hurt one of my dogs, but yeah, 
And that, oh, that's yeah, where that's that's the Mama Grizzly thing, mm-hmm. where where uh, hundred ten pound women lift cars off of children and stuff. You you, you mess with with uh, Jessica's fur babies, <laughs> and, and God help you. Correct. So Ossoff wants to expunge the records of nonviolent juvenile offenders. Mm-hmm, he does. He sent out a press release about it because in the press release he called himself like a a champion of sorts. I don't know. He 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 self-proclaims all these things and I think I've complained about his media relations for a while because like everything is like they send out I'm all I love press releases. I love when you you tell us what you did that day. Like, I think it's great. And, and to his credit, you know, that's not something that Purdue was very good at, but it's constant. Like John Ossoff secures promise from, you know, this nominee and John Ossoff gets this person to commit to this. Like it's not, and those are just like, basically they, they just sent out press releases and videos of him commenting or drawing out questions for people who have been nominated for different cabinet positions and the person saying the answer he wants. And then he's like, yes, absolutely. And then he sends out a press release about it. It's very bizarre, but he also proclaims himself the victor of all these things because he gets people to say or do what he wants. And so anyway, carry on. Well, the 58 page measure is a bipartisan one known as the first step step implementation act of 2021 which would seal the records of eligible nonviolent juvenile offenders, individuals who were convicted of nonviolent federal offenses when under the age of 18 would have a chance for a, quote, fresh start without a criminal record. Yeah. Um, I think it like I think everybody is in favor of the concept, right? Like nobody thinks that somebody who was sentenced at 16 or 17 for maybe like a drug crime, whether it was possession or trafficking, no one thinks that, that a, a juvenile offender should spend life in prison. And, and if we're talking about things that happened in the eighties during the, the tough war on drug stuff. And before we got to mandatory minimums um, reform, then I'm with you, but we had this conversation on Facebook on the actual article about like how many juvenile defender or offenders do we actually have? And so I went and looked it up because I was really intrigued. And of course this would be retroactive. So they're talking about people who were sentenced as um, juveniles and, you know, may have been in prison for 10, 15, 20 years at this point. But still, I wanted to know how many people, how many juvenile offenders we have in our federal prisons. And or in prison because of a federal offense, because in a lot of areas we don't send juveniles to federal facilities, even if they're a federal offense. So anyway, there's only two pathways for the feds to get a minor, which is committing a felony on tribal lands or in Washington, D.C., or immigration. Crossing state lines. Right. Trafficking. Right. And... Um, they said that, so, so there's not a lot of data because we only recently started keeping data on these things, but the U S sentencing commission said in, in a 2017 report that from 2010 to 2015, there were 52 youthful offenders under the age of 18 sentenced in the federal system. Well, I think there's some other stuff. I think some of the child porn stuff, um, and I'm not talking about true kitty porn. I'm talking about, uh, 16-year-olds sending each other pictures. Uh, that that depend, that could fall under federal. But it's so... It, first of all, the, the I don't have a problem with, with the concept, of course. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's... I, I think it's silly to, to sentence someone for 20 years for anything non-violent. Anyone, for that matter. Let right. alone someone who's 16 and probably under the influence of an adult. Uh, again, or under we're talking, the influence of drugs. <laughs> or under the influence of drugs, yeah. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're talking about nonviolent. So we're not talking about the D.C. shooter. I think I think the younger was under 18. We're not talking about that. We're talking about somebody who crossed state lines with, with weed. Somebody who 
again, had pictures of of his girlfriend on his phone or something like that. Uh, but it's such a narrow scope for 50 some odd pages. Well, I, I would think this, this, this legislation could be done one page. Yeah. And, and it does it. So it also allows them to, if someone, if a juvenile that was sentenced has been incarcerated for more than 20 years, it allows them to reduce the sentence or alter it. And then, um, then going forward, it would allow them to sentence below the mandatory minimum for nonviolent controlled substance. Cause you know, they do it based on a point system when you commit a federal offense and then you get points for, uh, ridiculous, stupid things. Like if you agreed early on to take a plea, as opposed to going to trial, you get penalized for going to trial. If you, cause you cost the taxpayers money and there's just all these different reasons and, and, and how much, whatever you did, like how much of it, how many offenses, how many counts you're, what you've done before. There's just all these points that add up to how you get your, your mandatory sentence, mandatory minimum sentence. And then it's, I think it's like, 50% of people are sentenced within those guidelines and juveniles are sentenced like at just a slightly higher rate, like 56%. So I don't know if, I mean, the data doesn't say like if the other 44% of juveniles are sentenced higher than the mandatory minimums or lower, I'm inclined to think it would be lower just because that's kind of how the system works. But, um, well, in, in, we're going to, you kind of glazed over it. It's not part of the story, but the idea that you get punished for exercising your rights. In, in no other facet do we see that. You have a right to, to face your accuser. You have a right to trial by in front of your peers. These are your rights. You, you don't When you go to trial and you exercise your Fifth Amendment right to, to remain silent, they're not allowed to penalize you for that. They're not allowed to count that as admission. They're not allowed to, they're not allowed to, to consider that at all. We could do uh, a whole show oh, on yeah, absolutely. the egregiousness of the, the federal court system for everybody. I mean, it's a like, I can't, the only thing worse than being charged with a crime, whether you committed the offense or not, would be being charged with a crime in federal court. Right. Yeah. The, the, uh, yeah, well, let's get back. Let's get back on that story because if we get off on that hog trail, yeah, we'll we'll fill we'll fill an hour up easy. We could do a series of shows on the on the federal court system. Uh, there was a 2016 article: Obama takes bold action, but for a population fewer than 30. Yeah, so he ran into the same thing where it was like the right the right idea when they when they got rid of um, using solitary for long term. You know, other than just a temporary behavior correction they um they prohibited the use of solitary confinement for juveniles in federal custody and again that's a great thing but in 2016 there were 30 juveniles in federal custody so it's kind of the same thing where i mean again i understand that the the bill is retroactive and it's not just going to talk about people who are at like 16 and 17 in institutions right now they're talking about people who were sentenced and i don't have a problem if someone has served 20 years for a drug offense let them out i don't want to pay for them to live anymore like let them out but right but i i have um you know there's there's another part of well the the expungement and the sealing of the records i'm not sure if um i think that's kind of a blanket thing to to go on. I don't. Well, and you know, we know that the statistics are the, the uh, youth are predominantly native American males with a, a extensive history of drug and or alcohol abuse. That's uh, their culture. It's not just culture. There's a biologically native Americans uh, have a, have a hard time with, with alcohol for sure. And, you know, you're on a reservation with very limited uh, opportunity. And, you know, you have you have these young males. And look, testosterone is a hell of a drug. So you mix hopelessness with with teenage angst and you get you get some people acting out and anywhere else in the country, not on federal lands. They would go into the juvenile court system. A judge would address it. Uh, they would have a chance to to either seek treatment going to juvie, whatever they, if they could straighten themselves out by 18, 
those records would be sealed. Specifically, not nonviolent. So, if you're 16 years old and you get you get popped with a pocket full of weed, they don't take you and, and throw you d- down in big boy prison. You go you go to the family court system. You're uh, you're able to make restitution. You're able to go to treatment. You're able to continue your schoolwork and continue to graduate high school. And hopefully, once you've done the process, the records are sealed, and you can go to college or go to trade school or go to work or whatever you're going to do and move on with your life and have the story that so many people I know have with, I was a real hell yeah to my youth. Mm-hmm. Hell, every youth minister I've ever met is half bragging when he talks about what brought him to the Lord. Well, it's interesting, too, because... Um in that sentencing report that I was talking about, or the sentencing commission report, it said that, um, so they, the report was about people under 25. Like I gave statistics about 17, 18 year olds, but the report as a whole was talking about how 18% of the federal population is individuals 25 and younger, um, between 2010 and 2015. But it said that the youthful offenders, which is again, people under 25 were, they had a 67% recidivism rate as opposed to 41% for the rest of the federal offenders. And I, you can't, you can't tell me that that's not because like in the, the malleable years, you put them in a, in a cage. Oh yeah. Look, you're not fully cooked even at 18. Especially if you're a guy. Oh yeah. Hell yeah. No, no, we, 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 uh, we're, we're, isn't it like 43 Huh. Well, I'm 44 and still haven't made it. <laughs> but no, you really, I would say that I, I grew up with a, a, a good bit thanks to, thanks to Connie's uh, uh, guidance. I say guidance, um, beatings. Um, <laughs> but yeah, at, 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 even at, at 26, when I, when I was when I was a I was promoted ahead of my time when I was in banking and I wasn't ready for, ready for that I just wasn't mentally mature enough I was married at at 19 or 20 for the, fir- the first time and I wasn't ready for that responsibility I still wanted to be a kid uh, everybody my age was, was was in college and going and having a good time and there I was you know and, and there was you know that led to a, a little a little bit of resentment and and I wasn't fully cooked to, to appreciate what I had. The brain just wasn't wasn't there. It wasn't that I wasn't smart, which I probably wasn't. But yeah, you're you're not fully cooked. You're still, and even now, you you get influenced based on hanging out with 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 friends. Uh, even your speech patterns change. If you hang out with Matt Lowe too much, you're going to start saying right. Uh, so, but you take that little, the little skull full of mush at 16 years old and you, and then at 18, you turn them over and you put them in with real criminals and that becomes normal to them. The stories that, that these criminals are telling them that, that becomes normal and that they're in a punishment system versus a, uh, a treatment or a, a, uh, a system that, that is going to push them towards being functioning adults. And I, and well, look if if look if you're 16 years old and you kill somebody, screw you, you're gonna sit in a cage for the rest of your life. But if you're 16 years old and you're on a on a uh, reservation and you get popped with with some drugs on you or something like that, it shouldn't mar the rest of your life. Well, like I said, there's I mean there's two different there's two different issues here for me. One is that, again, this is a huge piece of legislation, which again, it's going forward. I respect that. Like, but, and and you want reform for the people sentenced in the future, but maybe let's talk about the fact that, you know, there is a place for these, these, these quote people anyway, because one of the things, one of the um, demographics for, I guess it's 92% of offenses committed by people under 25 are nonviolent. So you're talking about 8%. And then, but if you take the 92%, 28% of that, 28.6% is immigration. So you're talking about, and then, and then you look at the, the recidivism rates. Well, I mean, if you, de- if you, if someone serves time for an immigration offense and then you deport them and then they come back, that's recidivism. I'm not sure that while I don't agree with, you know, 
I, I agree that it is a crime. I'm not sure that we should be classifying that as. And why are you putting kids in immigration? Like, why are you charging them with immigration offenses anyway? I, I don't I don't understand. Overwhelmingly, the children that create uh, that commit those offenses are not doing it on their own. This is a parent bringing him with them or a parent uh, taking him to a coyote and saying, hey, get get my child into the United States. And look, I, I get why they want to come here. And, and, and immigration, again, is another hog show we can get off on and do and do a series on. But right to, to count that in with recidivism rates is insane. Uh, here's the thing. We could this could be a one page bill, like I said before. And Biden could cure everybody that has has been convicted at of not with a stroke of the pen. Mm-hmm. No, that'd make everybody mad, though. Who cares? He doesn't know. Hmm. I mean, the, uh, you know, Doctor Jill's right behind him, going J O E. But he could he could do it very simply. And have a one-page bill going forward. But it, I, I haven't read the entire 58 pages. Uh, it's summertime. I'm, I'm an air conditioning man. And 58 pages of, of legislation at the federal level is boring. Well, and I guess the, the biggest thing is I'm just a little bit disappointed because the first first step act, which I think passed in 2018, Trump signed it. And, you know, it had the backing of Americans for Prosperity, Freedom Works, like FAM, um, uh, a bunch of bipartisan organizations or nonpartisan organizations from across all the, the spectrum, but it was, it was so monumental and did so much. And I know there's a long way to go, but I just feel like this is such a drop in the bucket. Like, Oh, we're going to, we're going to come back. We're going to circle back around with the first step act, first step act and, and have this conversation about justice reform, but it's really going to probably impact, you know, such a small number of people that it doesn't resonate with folks. Like the, the last, the first step act from 2018, that people got it. They were like, yes, this makes sense to me. But, and I know you don't like Ossoff. I know you don't like him. And I don't, I don't think he's that great either, but he is at least having the conversation. Whereas Purdue, I mean, he, that guy had to be like, he had to, he was lobbied hard to get on board with the last one, which did a lot more. Like at least, at least we're having the conversations. Oh, no, look, a, a stop clock is right twice a day. Look, I, I'm not such an ideologue that I'm going to say just because he has a D after his name, it does is not a good idea. It is a good idea. And speaking of our prior conversation, uh, as far as if you had gotten a fist fight, you could probably take us off. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so judge says Georgia's pro-Israel law violates the First Amendment. Um, I'm a terrible reporter because this case started at Georgia Southern like three years ago, which I was down here and I didn't know about it. Um, but okay. So to back up in 2016, the state of Georgia in all their glory, um, uh, passed a law and Nathan deal signed it into effect to basically, um, bar contractors, who do business with the state of Georgia from boycotting or encouraging the boycott of Israel. Um, and so they would have any contractor, whether this is what blew my mind. So any contractor, uh, like for road department or road department from the DOT to a substitute teacher had to sign an oath in their contract saying that they would agree not to, encourage the boycott or actually boycott the country of Israel. And for some reason, the legislature thought that this was extremely important. We have 26 other states that had did, that did it. But what happened at Georgia Southern is this um, documentary filmmaker chick was going to speak to the student population. She was going to be paid. It only applies if you're going to be paid over a thousand dollars. But I, and I don't really know who was paying her or for what, but I, Anyway, she was going to speak and she refused to sign it. She wasn't planning on lobbying against um, Israel during her her speech or anything, but she just was against them limiting her speech because she wanted to 
be contracted with the state. So she refused. They canceled her speaking engagement and she sued. And this week, the judge said, yeah, you can't you can't do that. Um, You can't. The state can't mandate that she refused to do business that, you know, are boycotting the country of Israel. And. It, it's, uh, well, you know, <laughs> it's crazy. Why? I'm a, Why? I'm a huge supporter of Israel. I don't need the government to, to ask me to, to sign a loyalty pledge to Israel. And, and I'd be insulted if they did. Uh, but yeah, I don't know who in the legislature, legislature pushed this through. Uh, Ralston was, was speaker. Oh, he- you want me I mean, to tell he, you? He's he's a damn he's he's a damn lawyer. He knows better. Oh please, come on! He doesn't look at the law. Well, that's just true. I mean, it, his favorite people are those who break the law and uh, sign his retainer. Yeah, I, of course. You know, I'm not going to let the people down. I put the votes on the Georgia Virtue in the article I wrote about it because I wanted people to see who voted for it. I mean, there were only four no votes in the Senate because. You know, or six but no votes in the Senate, of course. But it was um, Senate Bill 327, Judson Hill and his hair, um, Josh McCoon, Mike Crane, Bruce Thompson, and William Ligon. Luckily, well, and Hunter Hill. So Judson Hill, Hunter Hill, Mike Crane, and William Ligon are all gone. The only two fools of this that we have to... Oh, and Captain America, Representative David Clark, um, was the sponsor in the House. And it, it passed 95 to 71 in the House and then 45 to 6 in the Senate. And so, I mean, obviously, some Democrats voted for it in the Senate, but in the House, that's pretty close to party lines back then with a few Republicans that voted against it. But I, I liked what the judge said in his order because he wrote, a, a, I think, a 29-page order, like just eviscerating Chris Carr's office, which made my heart flutter. But he said... Even assuming that Georgia's interest in furthering foreign policy goals regarding relations with Israel is a substantial state interest, the defendants failed to explain how um, Martin, the reporter or the filmmaker's advocacy of a boycott of Israel has any bearing on Georgia's ability to advance foreign policy goals with Israel, which is exactly right. Like what she does in her free time does not hurt Israel's relationship with Georgia. And let's not pretend that this is about like economics or foreign policy or like it was it's politics. It's it's about the perception of supporting Israel, which it's a hundred percent politics. Yeah. yeah. I don't know that Israel has a huge economic impact on Georgia. Georgia's job is not foreign policy. Of all the things that I tell the feds to get out of the state's business, foreign policy belongs to the federal government. It's not for the state to do that. Also, it's not for the state to, to trample on any, anyone's right to speak up. Uh, it's you can't tell an educator that they can't have an opinion about 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 a uh, a foreign country. Now, look, well, I, I, I think boycotting Israel is stupid. Uh, I, I I really want I really want peace over in Israel because I want to visit, but I really don't want to have a rocket up my butt. Um, because it, it, there's so much history there. there it's, it's, it's such a, I mean, there's so much to see, so much to experience in Israel. I, I really want to go, but I would like the area to be a little more stable before I do. So I'm, I may not make it before I die. Maybe they'll bury me there. I don't know. So it, how did anybody not look at this and say, yeah, we're probably shouldn't be doing this. I mean, they couldn't have just pass a normal resolution supporting Israel and rubber stamp it and send it off to uh, to Netanyahu and say, here you go. You know, here's our love for Israel. No. And no, we couldn't do that. And I'll, you know, I'm all for giving credit where credit's due. And this is probably the only time I can find something nice to say about her. But Park Cannon voted against it and it really hurts me to say it. But she did. A stopped clock. Is right but twice I still a day. support sending her on the first rocket to Spaceport Camden. <laughs> Launched out of your backyard? <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> you need to get a picture of Stanley in a in a space helmet or something like that with a little bottle rocket next to him. Say hey, it's a, a, a spaceport Salaji. I think he so, would have a stroke if I set off a rocket next to him. Even those I didn't little say ones. I set that, it off. I said just put it next to him. Well, but I used to build model rockets when I was a little kid because I wanted to be an astronaut, so I couldn't just have it there and not set it off. Yeah, but you know, girls aren't good at science. <laughs> what? <laughs> I found your feminism. <laughs> I don't even understand what that means. We keep seeing all these commercials for STEM and stuff that that girls are, are lagging behind in math and sciences and all that stuff. Well, I do that, suck at math. I mean, gosh, <laughs> I really am bad at math. Speaking of the First Amendment, <laughs> it got a little wild at the, at the Gates Green rally last week. Yeah, he's an idiot. Did you see what he said? Yes. So they were. See, he was okay. Well. You tee it up. I'll wait. I was like, oh, God, he's such an idiot. He's so he's an idiot for so many reasons. But this was really stupid. Uh, you want to read the, the Marjorie Green part? and I'll read Matt. Why? Because I'm a woman. Yes, exactly. Why? OK, sure. And you're so, crazy. <laughs> well, I can't sound like her and I don't have I have better hair than her. But she said in this interview talking about, you know, they're doing these like these multiple appearances together. And she said, Matt and I have teamed up because we refuse to allow Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger or any Trump hating Republican. We won't allow the GOP to turn into their party. So we're taking charge. We're bringing it to the people. That's why they're going on tour together. And cause she's like backing him in against the DOJ investigation into him or something. I don't know. But so they were in a rally on Thursday night. Yeah. Up in Dalton. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah. Talking about big tech, of course. Yeah, and let me give you, this is going to be hard to, I'm going to read it as he said it. And I, I played this clip like five times trying <laughs> to understand his, 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 his train of reason here. But we have a Second Amendment in this country, and I think we have an obligation to use it. And this is what he's talking about, big tech censorship. So he's talking yeah, about... He, it's he said tech. Silicon Valley won't cancel conservatives. And then he goes into the Second Amendment. Okay, Gates, um, or Gates, or however you pronounce your, your name, because it's spelled wrong. Uh, what are you proposing? Are, are we grabbing ARs and gonna pick, grab, go in our pickup trucks and go cross-country to Silicon Valley and go charge the gates of Facebook? I mean, what, what the hell are you talking about? I don't know, but I mean, if, if, if what, (laughs) so if, if the answer to canceling conservatives is to rise up with arms and you won't find someone more pro second amendment for me. Like I think if if people want to own a tank and, and a hundred guns and I mean, whatever, like there, the limit does not exist, but I don't understand what he's doing here and i don't if what trump said in january was insurrection what the hell is this is it because it's not the government that it's okay to say this like i just what kind of that it's just a bad message i don't i left the gop a long time ago but this is not a message i can support but it it doesn't it doesn't make any sense I, i guess in his head somewhere there was a connection between facebook putting me in, in Facebook jail for seven days and my right to keep and bear arms. Those are two, I mean, I, I have no you idea what his, what his strain of consciousness is. And I think uh, Cumby, our editor, had the one of the best comments on Facebook was, I wonder if, some, something, if I'm not, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but something to the effect of, does he understand that we have the right to bear arms to, to oppose people like him? Is to rise up against the government, not against private entities? Sure. It's the First Amendment. I mean, the second protects the first, but we have the first. It is the first for a reason. Like it is the. And and, and we're not. I mean, he is the government at the end of the day. Sure. He's talking about the conservatives being canceled and everything. But but he is the institution. He's a congressman. Absolutely. But he wants to. I don't know what what the hell he thinks he's doing. Uh, I don't know if he thinks he's going to run in 24. I don't know if oh God. He, he wants to hop no. on somebody's uh, uh, vice presidential ticket. 
I don't know. I, he obviously has an overinflated opinion of himself because I don't. I mean, he he wouldn't make it past. He wouldn't make it to the first debate. He wouldn't. He wouldn't have the numbers. He, well, he you're just, talking he just about you saying you know he don't. You're not sure like what he was thinking or it doesn't make sense to you. I think it's truly a result of having you know some high points that you hit when you have just rhetoric and you know fundraising taglines. And I'm a that, I'm a gun that, guy. But but this and, is not and, a principled position. I don't care what you believe or you know how you feel about can because I I am against cancel culture and I'm for the Second Amendment. But you don't just put all these things in a in a sentence and then wait for the crowd to cheer. Like you- <laughs> no, it's it's like they put a bunch of random phrases into a computer and then have the computer randomly spit them out. They don't make any sense. It, it just, I don't, I don't know where the hell gets is going on this. I don't know if he's trying to deflect from his legal issues or the, the stories that came out about him when he was in the Florida house. I have no idea what the hell he's doing. And I don't know why, uh, uh, Margie Green is, is attaching herself to him other than they're, they're two lunatics out there that are, that are on the outs with everybody. And they, they whip up the crowd. It's almost a South Park esque. They took our jobs, sort of thing, uh, making fun of the 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 group think and and blaming other people for for everything. I don't know where he's going with this. And look, I sit here every week not making sense. That dude's nuts. I I loved the headline from the Daily Beast though. And said so the Gates Green traveling freak show is the future of the GOP, and and it was an opinion piece, so you know at least the bias was announced. But they're not scoring any points. And I have said, I was talking to my mom about it last week too. We were talking about Marjorie and some of her comments, and I think she's a worse messenger than Trump. I mean. People may dislike her for different reasons and and despise him for other reasons because he, you know, his four years of comments and things that people can point to that they hate. But in terms of like advancing the cause or she, I, I think she's way worse. And mm. sure she is. She she jumped districts. I don't even know what she believes. She wanted to be elected. And she's, she believes she's, in Trump. That's I mean, that's obvious. Trump hating Republicans. We won't allow them to take over our party. Who yeah, cares? But, but I'm talking about I, I don't know that, that she what she actually believes, what values she actually has. And I've said many times I, I've met Margie Green. She's very nice in person. And I've, I've heard the same thing about Trump. Uh, she doesn't. The only thing I like about her is when I asked her where her her butt is. Uh, everybody says I'm pro Second Amendment, but. Uh, where, where's your butt? People say, you, I'm pro-Second Amendment, but you don't need an AR-15. I'm pro-Second Amendment, but you don't need a tank. And she's like, I don't have one. It should be absolute. Like, oh, well, that's a great answer. So, like, okay, well, yeah, yeah I, I like her answer on that. And then after I, I met her at this thing uh, 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 early on in the primary, she just, I guess she just grabbed the Trump playbook and said, let me start putting crazy crap out. But what is she doing to advance those causes? Because the resolutions I've seen her put out and the the legislation that she's carrying is, um, you know, to remove Nancy Pelosi from office, to impeach Biden. Like, I understand that she's appealing to her base, but what what policies has did she campaign on that she's now working to advance, even if they don't go anywhere because she's not on any committees and they don't like her? draft the legislation and have the conversation. Well, you know, honestly, she's such a lightning rod. I'd rather her name not be on legislation. I drafted, handed it to somebody else to drop, which, which happens well, around the, the Georgia house a good bit. Because if you're on the outs with the speaker, uh, you, you can't tie your name to anything. You got to hand it to somebody else to drop. So, so the speaker yeah, doesn't see your she, name on it. She could still draft it and have some stupid name on it like she does and then, and have her conversation on the side. But I'm just saying like what she's doing is distracting her entire base that the, our priorities are impeaching Biden and taking out Nancy Pelosi and, and, and debating AOC. Like those aren't our top priorities. Our top priorities are always rolling back overreaching regulations and repealing bad laws. We have zero other obligations, right? Like you don't have to do anything else. Well, she also, uh, 
if the Republicans take back the House, uh, and that's that's a distinct possibility in 22 that, that the Republicans take back the House, just historically speaking, uh, presidents tend to lose uh, uh, seats uh, in, in the midterm. It just I don't know if it's people consciously like divided government or or what actually caused it. But historically speaking, Clinton lost it in 94. Uh, Bush lost it. Uh, Obama lost lost the House. Uh, Trump lost the House. So this is historically speaking, a, a, a president gets a hostile Congress. So but say the Republicans take it and. And that's and that's great. She's such a lightning rod that even if she wins wins reelection out here, she's not going to get any a, a committee assignment. They may give her some token assignments, but she's not going to be be invited into leadership. I, I, there's she's going to be this fringe person that's out there that even the, the Republicans are like, ah, man, I, you know, look, I'm a small government guy, but, you know, keep keep green away from me. Getz? No, I, no, I can't hang out with Getz, man. I, I got a wife and I got a wife to think about. I can't be hanging out with Getz. Um, so I don't know what their motivation is. I don't know why they're doing rally. They're doing rallies outside of Florida and Georgia. Mm-hmm. Why? It's even to the point where Margie nor Matt are really welcome on, on even Fox right now. You get sound bites of them, but for, for a while, they were both off, you know, both guests often on, on Fox News, on Fox Business. Um, and honestly, Margie's been traded for, for Vermin Jones. You Thanks, can't turn. Marjorie. Yeah, yeah. You just would have held our attention without going totally Q crazy. We'd have been okay. Good God, man. So we have $4 billion in payments to, quote, erase debt of socially disadvantaged farmers to be issued next month. Socially disadvantaged farmers, Jessica. Aren't all farmers sort of disadvantaged? Yeah, because of the government. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, farming, farming is such a, I'm against subsidies and everything, and I'm, for corporations, for, for individuals, for, for farmers. But until you can't take away subsidies from farmers until you get the government out of farming. It's the only industry in the, in the world where government controls the input and the output. They control the price of the goods that like in in what other, it it, it makes me sick. Like they they are uh, anyway, that's another conversation as well. This, this is part of the American Rescue Plan Act. So there was a line item in there. They didn't put any um, specific dollar amount, which is kind of weird. But um, they just directed the U.S. Department of Agriculture to address racial discrimination in minorities um, and to eliminate all farm debt held by, like you said, socially disadvantaged minority farmers. And then, obviously, when did that pass? Like two months ago, I guess, maybe? But the USDA has come back and said, we totaled up all the debt that is owed to us and to private entities um, by minority farmers. And that's about $3.9 billion, with a B, dollars. And um, the legislation and the USDA defined a socially disadvantaged person as um, a farmer or rancher who is a member of a socially disadvantaged group, which is further defined as a group whose members have been subjected to racial or ethnic prejudice because of their identity as members of a group without regard to their individual qualities. Um, Excuse me, by creating a socially disadvantaged group and calling them minorities right now you're making a socially disadvantaged group of white people because you're you're not forgiving their debt yeah you you, how do you compete as as a small farmer how do you compete well small farmers don't compete anymore they're dying well i'm talking about with with government interference or or, or, any level how do you compete how how could i compete as as an air conditioning company if the company down the road has the, has the government forgiving all their debt for for all the all the material they bought, all the trucks, all the all the real estate they bought to run their company, and I have to go out and spend my money or take a loan for me. How how do I compete with them? So, farms a business. 
how do you compete with the farm down the road who can now sell his cabbage at 50% of what, of what you can, because his debt just got erased. Well, and, and I did, I, I wrote an article about this and, and I did some research because I mean, I wasn't paying attention to agriculture in 1997 and 98 and, and, this has been an ongoing thing with minority farmers and it was a real thing, you know, back in the gosh, I mean, for as long as we can is for a very long time, there, there were farmers who were denied um, access to loans and grants and federal programs by the USDA for reasons that were based on race. And I mean, that, that is a thing and, and they sued over it and, not only did they offer reforms and create new programs specifically for the people that had been disadvantaged, they offered a pathway for settlements. And it, this is actually like, it's called Pigford B, V. Glickman. Um, and there were a bunch of Georgia farmers in it, but there, it was actually the largest civil rights settlement ever, like to date, even still. And I think, it was settled in the early 2000s and they came back in 2008 and reappropriated more funds in the farm bill. And then the Obama administration allocated additional money. So, I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars were already allocated years ago. Um, I think a hundred million was in the, in the farm bill, but anyway, they gave people two options. They said you can either, you know, take this $50,000 settlement um, and then you can have access to all these loan programs. And then they said they didn't have any tax liability for it. Or you can go down this other pathway of suing um, for every dollar amount you feel like you, you know, like a typical lawsuit, like itemize your losses. and and But you've got to prove it by a preponderance of the evidence that's more likely than not that their claims were valid, blah, 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 blah. So, and then a third party would have been, would have come in and ruled on it. Well, everybody was like the $50,000 plus the loans is great. So they took the 50,000 and they got access to all these loans. So now all these farmers that got a cash payment and then took out government loans are having those loans forgiven by the same government they wanted to loan them the money. Like it, in what universe is that okay? It's not a loan. If you don't pay it back, it's not a loan. Well, it was supposed to be a loan. Right, it was supposed to be a loan. Hey look, we're talking about, and I'm going uh, based on my memory of reading an article on the Georgia Virtue, that mm -hmm. we're talking about the case that covered from something like it's 1978 to 1990. And of course, they went into the court systems. Mm -hmm. But we're, we're talking about... If they were discriminated against between that period, I think it was 81 to 96, they were eligible. Some 14,000 farmers got right. approval to get 40 money. some odd years ago. And, and look, it, the restitution was made. It was. It took a while, but it was made. It did. The courts moved slowly. Restitution was made. So going forward, especially with special programs aimed at righting the wrongs with, with uh, uh, sweetheart loans and all that stuff, what disadvantage have you had since then? Because let me tell you something, when, when, I, when I go to Publix or I go to the farmer's market or anything else, I don't know the ethnic background of the person that uh, owns the farm that grows the celery. I have no idea. So on the market side, the no one cares. Now, now that now that restitution has been made, now compete in the market. That's it. Go compete in the market. And look, being a if you really want to help farmers, you do away with inheritance taxes. You do away with capital gains taxes, property uh, you, taxes, property taxes. And if you really want to help farmers, that's the way you do it. You don't do it by doing handouts. You do it by getting government the out of the way. Well, it's just so frustrating because it's like asked and answered, you know? I mean, the, is, does the government make, create winners and losers every single day of the week? 
but this does absolutely nothing to stop that. And the best way to stop the government from discriminating is to take away the government's ability to loan people money. Right. Absolutely. The government has no place lending money anyway. But and and well, no, they don't have any because they don't they don't ever they don't even ever hold people accountable. Now we're going to roll back four billion dollars. And I mean, I I don't I haven't read the American Rescue Plan Act so because it's 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 long quite, and boring. Yeah, but I'm I'm concerned about how it's going to work with the private entities. Are we as the taxpayers paying off these private entities, or are these private entities? I mean, surely they can't just say y'all are screwed. Sorry. Because it had to be a secured loan in some sense. It, is it backed by the federal government? Are we on the hook for that? And what's of course the percentage? we are. Well, what's the percentage of the four billion that's owed to the private entities? That's what I want to know. But uh, yeah, and that's that's not disclosed, and probably nobody knows. But yeah, well, plus these private entities, when everybody hates banks, most people own bank stocks in their four hundred one ks, their IRAs, or SEPs uh, as as part of a, a good mixed portfolio. These banks made loans in in good faith and agreed to get paid back with interest. And the government's gonna come come through here and just wipe it off and give them the principal back. It yeah, I this is this is a solution looking for a problem. And all it's gonna do is is kill competition in the market. And and it's it's a pandering move. It's oh. so it's it's so people can go back to their districts and say, look what I'm doing for you. Two things that are kind of, well, pretty important that I want to mention, too, for people who are like, eh, I'm not on the fence. OK, first of all, they're direct payments to the farmers, 15,000 farmers. They're not going to, I mean, pay the lender. And then also they are the bill authorized up to 120 percent of the outstanding balance. Excuse me. Why? If I owe $20,000 on my car and the federal government's going to come in and, and release, relieve that for me, there's no reason, again, I'm not good with math, but whatever 120% of 20 is. 24000 Thank you. That's just another $4,000 in my pocket for what reason? Because. Because you're disadvantaged. Because votes. Because these elected officials think that these people are too stupid to vote for their policies if they're not giving them something. And they, that's the, the, the reality is that they're too smart. Like people, if, they, if you weren't handing them something, they might actually realize that your policies suck. Right. Yeah. It, it, buying votes has, has become commonplace. Now, look, if, if I wanted to run for office and I walked down the line of people waiting to vote and started handing out $100 bills, they'd throw my butt in jail. But once you're elected and you hand out taxpayers $100 bills, that's okay. That's encouraged. That's helping people. Good God, man. It is, it's a, it is disgusting that... And that politicians have figured out that they can use our money, I'm going to smack the mic again, our money to buy votes to retain their power. It's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. And I wouldn't smack the mic if I didn't talk with my hands as if anybody can actually see me. Yeah. Besides the the if you CIA. hadn't kicked the if you hadn't kicked the cat out, <laughs> yeah, had kicked the cat out, you'd you'd hear her purring behind me or something. Agreeing, right? Yeah, agreeing with me. Yeah, whatever, just pet me. So yeah, if anybody heard the the meowing at at the intro, the the cat was outside my door, wanting in and, and wanting to crawl in my lap. Mm-hmm. So I punished her for it. Naturally, I I, I ran her off because. Uh, Listening to me is bad enough without having to listen to her mouth constantly running. But just this, this is a really good article. And this is exactly why people should follow the Georgia Virtue. Great plug, Dave. As you know, we, we don't see this in our in our normal discourse of watching news. If you turn on your local news and turn on or turn on Fox News, CNN, uh, PMS, NBC, whatever, <laughs> you, 
you're not going to get the insight of what's actually happening up there. Because people wonder, what do they do up there all day? This is this is what they do. This is what they do. So well, and this just speaks to the fact that like it's really hard for me to believe that this American rescue. I mean. <laughs> You know, they how they they say we have an emergency and we need emergency legislation and urgent. There's an urgent need. And then they somehow end up with legislation that is years and years old that they've been trying to pass for forever. It's just in there because it's an emergency. Well, that's what happened with Obamacare. Understand Obamacare came out so fast. It was such a big package that's been sitting in the desk since 1994. When Hillary tried to push this push through Hillary Care in the '90s, it never went anywhere. It went into a desk in an office deep in the halls of Congress, and they waited. And then Bush was elected, so they waited, and then they got it. They got a friendly Congress, a friendly uh, a friendly person in the White House, and they said, "Now's the time." And they dropped that thing and pushed it through. This is what they do: they wait until. They draw the stuff up and just sits there and they wait for their opportunity. And when the numbers are, are in their favor, they drop it. All right, let's push it through right now before before anybody notices and before anybody changes their minds. Let's push this through. And if you call back Gates and Green really were principled about small government, this is what they'd be talking about, not Facebook, not Twitter and not about grabbing our, our rifles and, and going to Silicon Valley. He'd be talking about government spending, government overreach. This is what they'd be talking about if they were really concerned with pushing the conservative small government message. They'd be talking about legislation like this. So maybe, I, I did find Gates and, and uh, Green's email addresses. I'm going to go ahead and sign them up for the newsletter, The Georgia Virtue, because this is the stuff <laughs> that they need to be reading. Uh, Dave, Dave, Dave. I'm not going to give you any money for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> Jess, you have any final thoughts? Um, yeah, since you teed it off in the beginning of the show, Stanley, his book, you know, we have talked about his book on the show and and how he was donating all of the proceeds to um, charities for dogs in need and stuff. And so he made his first little round of donations to three organizations. Um, the the uh, It's called Fixing the Borough. They are a rescue, foster placement, adoption place. And they also obviously have a SNP clinic, which I think was a little PTSD-esque for Stanley when he went to have his, when he took the check and donated um, everybody. But then also to the Scrubbing County, um, Friends of the Scrubbing County Animals over there, which is our neighboring county. And then the Georgia Police Canine Foundation, which helps retired canines and um, working canines get the gear and protection and healthcare stuff that they need. So um, Stanley spread the wealth because the nonprofit sector is the way to help those in need, not the government. Absolutely. Stanley's a libertarian puppy dog. Duh. Duh. As you see, uh, <laughs> yeah, as <a> duh. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that, that's exactly what we want to see in the communities is, is someone reaching out and seeing a problem. How can I help? Not, gee, what can government do to help? Or showing up at the Screven County Board of Commissioners meeting going, hey, we need to send some money to these people. Or contacting your state rep going, hey, we need funding for this. You're like, no, how can I make a difference? Come on, Stanley. Get your cape. Let's, let's go help these puppy dogs out. That's right. Uh, today, as the show drops, is Memorial Day. As everyone knows, this is not the day to thank a veteran. It's the day to remember those who didn't come back. And don't say uh, happy Memorial Day. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough because it is it is a good opportunity to get to go to get together with family, especially on a, on a beautiful weekend and grill out. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's the freedom that that those who died fought for. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's it's a at least when uh, as you're opening up a, cracking open a a cold one, it is it's good to, to remember what Memorial is it, Memorial Day is. And it's a good thing to, to remind kids. I know adults know this, but uh, but just remind kids why. Today's a holiday. Of course, they're out of school now, so it's not like this is why you have a day off of school. But this is this is why. And and and, and you know, depending on the age, obviously, and of course, all of my vast experience as a as a parent. But it's a good opportunity to remind kids of 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 why we remember this day. Uh, also, I, I'm going to fit in my closing thought. These have been our opinions. 
Mm. and not those of anyone not appearing on the show or any respective company for which we, <laughs> we may work, own, or otherwise associate ourselves with on a regular or irregular basis. And we don't represent the opinions of Eric Cumbie. I don't want to lump them in. <laughs> but all that, thank you, Eric, for our editor, Jessica Salaji, my partner in crime. I'm Dave Roberts. Have a great week. 